Let's turn to our scripture here. And Julie read this passage earlier, so I won't read it again right now, but we're going to go through it pretty much line by line. You know, as I uh, get a little bit older, I can play the, you know, the wisdom card a little bit more, or at least the experience card, right? And so I was thinking through this. If someone asked me based on, okay, you're old now, and uh, you've been a pastor for 30 years and a youth pastor for what, uh, what, what barrier there was to people embracing God and his ways more? Or what was it that drew more people away from following Christ in their life? And I've seen that, obviously. I think I would answer something like this. Our main problem with trusting God is that we are mainly focused on improving our lives, and God is working to transform our nature. Those aren't the same goals. And so what he brings into our life may not work in terms of our goal of improving our life, of making ourselves better. Or to put it another way, uh, we are working on becoming a happier caterpillar. God is transforming us to give us flight. Amy and I had a very graphic illustration of that, a very visual illustration of that last weekend. A week ago, Friday, we went down with um, one of her cousins and her husband, good friends of ours as well. And we went down to a new place we hadn't gone before. It was in Indianapolis. We were going to have dinner at a place called The Garage. Knew nothing about it. But what we found was that this place and this area had a very rich history. And it starts right here. It starts 90 years ago when Coca-Cola built a large bottling plant on Mass Avenue downtown. It took five city blocks, 11 acres, and they built this beautiful building. And across the street, there was a garage where they housed all their, their buses and vehicles. And of course, inside the rooms, or inside the, the building, beautiful as it was, it was very much focused on this one activity of, of bottling. And uh, you can see here, kind of as you're coming north on, Grant, on Mass Avenue, what it looked like. Let me show you what it looks like as of today. Some developers came in because this, this, this bottling plant, um, actually, of course, ceased bottling at some point. It became the largest bottling plant in the world. During the 50s, it was, it was deploying hundreds of workers and producing more than 2 million bottles of Coke each week. Wow. But then aluminum cans hit the market. Lighter, cheaper, and, uh, and by 1964, the largest Coca-Cola plant in the world, bottling plant, had bottled its last uh, bottle of cola there. It was uh, used by Indianapolis Public Schools for quite a while as a main kitchen and transportation hub. And then in 2015, they announced that they were going to sell the property, all 11 acres, all five blocks, right there on Mass Avenue. The city, of course, took notice. So they, there were some developers, they put it out for auction, there were some developers who had this idea and this vision and the money to put into it, and they actually changed that main building into this beautiful hotel. And not only that, but the whole compound there has been transformed. This is the lobby of the hotel. Here's another view. And part of the reason they did this is because this particular building 
uh, was, is probably the best example of Art Deco style, which was very fashionable back then, in all the city and probably all the state of Indiana. And they thankfully preserved that and restored it very beautifully. And you can see, if you go there now, a very swanky and rather expensive hotel. So we looked it up. We're like, oh, it'd be cool to stay here. Yeah, cheapest rooms are almost 300 bucks. You want to get the penthouse suit, it's going to set you back 2000 a night. Uh, so, you know, you're not going to go here just, just on a whim. But look how beautiful they have transformed this building using a lot of the structure and themes of the original, but making it entirely new. And again, the whole area out there has been transformed. This is, remember the garage that used to hold the trucks? This is what it looks like now. This is a dining venue. There are about 20 uh, food vendors within this. And uh, you can see the inside here a little bit. Adjacent to this, there is an arcade. You got duck and bowling in the bottom, games on top. And then adjacent to that also is a new theater downtown. Now, this is what I mean when I'm talking about a transformation. This is taking something that was being used for one purpose and putting a whole lot of money and a whole lot of time and a whole lot of skill to transforming it because now it has a different and better purpose. This is the kind of transformation that I'm talking about when I say that part of our problem with God, maybe our main problem, is that we are working to make our life simply better in this world's terms. It's almost like, you know, we're, we're polishing the marble and we're, we're sweeping the floor. And God says, no, 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 this got to be a demolition day because I've got bigger things in mind here, right? Now, the, the text that explains this to us, probably better than any other, is Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. It's going to be in your bulletin. And as we go through this, I want you to just see this transformation. I'm going to break this into two parts. Number one is just describing our great transformation. And then number two, talking about how we should respond. What does it mean to us? What should we do? Because unlike the Coke factory, we're not passive recipients of this. We're not designed to be. All right. So first, your great transformation. You are being transformed. First idea. From dead to alive. It says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that has now worked among the children of disobedience. He says, before Jesus Christ saved you, or this, by describing now, to be frank, if you're not saved by Jesus Christ, you were dead in your sins. Now you may look at yourself and say, well, you know, it seems like we're pretty alive here, apart from that, right? Well, maybe in some sense, but it's a, it's a dying kind of life, isn't it? Dying kind of life because every day and every moment we're one step closer to its termination. But it's also kind of dying because it's not being used. It's not reaching its full purpose. So if I'm out camping, for example, and I, oh, we forgot the broom. So I go to a, a small tree and cut off a branch with some leaves and I use that for a makeshift broom. That branch looks like it has life, but it's a dying kind of life. It's a mispurposed use of that. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. But now, as he talks about, and we'll come back to some of this, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in sin, has made us alive with Christ. 
It is by grace that you have been saved. So God has given you not only eternal life, but if you remember how we've studied the different words for life in the New Testament, bios and zoe, a different kind of life, a different kind of existence. It's not making a caterpillar live longer. It's transforming into a new kind of life, a better kind, more beautiful. Secondly, we have been transformed from under Satan to being with Christ or in Christ. So the prince of the power of the air, the idea being that his influence within this world system is pervasive. Does it mean that everything is like, like Satan, that all things we do are, are you know, in, in leash to him, as it were? No, we're still made in the image of God. We still have conscious. We still have this common grace within us. But everything has been affected. That's the idea of being, him being the prince of the power of the air. And it says we were under that authority. We were under that influence. And most of the time, without even recognizing it. But instead, now, we are those who are with or in Christ. Three times in this short passage, we are described as being with Christ, and three times described as being in Christ. So what does it mean that we have been transformed from being under the influence of power of Satan to being with and in Christ? Um, think, I want you to use your imagination here. Not a perfect analogy, but it might get us at least halfway there. Imagine yourself living like Dietrich Bonhoeffer in Germany, say the year 1940. So Adolf Hitler's been on the throne since 1929. He's got over 10 years where his influence has pervaded every aspect of your culture. And you have seen uh, morals and thoughts and values change, and you've seen hate arisen like you've never seen it before. Now imagine also that as you're living in that, you receive word from your grandfather who is a mayor of a small town in Canada. And he's recognizing what's going on and he invites you to take up his offer of emigrating because he's got the influence and the wealth making it happen, of emigrating from there to the place where he has been a mayor for 20 years and a, a, a city, a town that's shaped by his influence and in all the ways that make it very opposite to the culture that you now find yourself in in Germany. And if you took that offer, you would be transformed from being under a certain evil system to being with and in a, a man and a, a, who's quite contrary. Again, not a perfect analogy, but that's the idea, that we are in Christ. We are with Christ now. We no longer have this, or Satan no longer has this rightful claim upon us. Then third, we have been transformed from an object of wrath. Go back to this part here. We were by nature children of wrath, or I think the NIV puts it, objects of wrath like the rest of mankind. What does that mean? Well, it just means this, that we are not only under and in the system, but we ourselves are part of the problem because we each have sinned. We each have committed crimes against our conscience and against what we know is right. And therefore, we are rightfully objects of God's judicial anger and wrath. Not that he's blowing his top, but as the righteous judge of all the universe, he has a holy opposition to evil and a holy obligation to uphold what is right and to make sure that whatever crime there is against sin or against, or, or against conscience is paid for. 
but because of his great love for us. How's it go on here? He has made us alive with Christ, and he has seated us, raised us up with him, and seated us with him in, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So instead of an object of wrath, we have become recipients, eternal recipients of God's grace. We aren't just recipients of God's grace when we got saved. We're always that. This is an ongoing thing. Just like we receive from him every breath that we take in one sense. So as in this new humanity, we receive grace upon grace upon grace. It's our very lifeblood, as it were. This is who we are. You have been, let's make it personal. You've been transformed. If you were in Jesus Christ, this is you. You were dead in trespasses and sin. You lived a dying life, but you've been made alive permanently with a different kind of life through Jesus Christ. You've been transformed from being under Satan to being in and with the prince of heaven himself, Jesus Christ. And you have been transformed from being an object of wrath to being the eternal recipient of mercy. Let me tell you, there is no transformation that you and I have ever seen or experienced that really matches this. I mean, you can think of a caterpillar transforming into a butterfly, but this is deeper, for this is eternal, and it's not just a physical, it's a moral and spiritual, and it's paid for by the highest price, Jesus Christ himself and his death on the cross. This is a transformation with a capital T. This is what God is doing. He's not just trying to make our life more comfortable. He's transforming our very existence. Here's the second part, the purpose of that transformation. All right, why? Why did God do all this? Well, he tells us right here, right? Out of love. Because of his great love with which he loved you. Don't, don't brush that by. Put yourself there. Because he's writing to you. He's writing to each one of us individually. God is doing all this, not because you deserved it, not because you earned it, because he loves you. And every good thing that's happened in your life in this way has come through grace because of love. And then he goes on. He talks about showing his grace. In the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Now, when I start looking at that, I'm like, this seems odd. Who is he showing this to? You know, this is in the coming ages. Is he speaking about you know, the spiritual forces, angels and demons? Well, maybe, but I think, pretty sure that what he's talking about is he's just showing it to us. And uh, going back to that story we had before the service, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, or before the sermon, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's family loved him. He didn't doubt that. But they gave things to show their love for him. I remember not nearly that extreme, but I was in Bible college, and Amy was not at that time. She'd already graduated, and we were uh, engaged, and she would send me packages uh, in the mail, and I loved those. It wasn't because, you know, they'd usually have food. It wasn't because I was hungry. Uh, it was because they were a visible expression of her invisible love. They showed her love. I think that's the idea here. God is doing all this, will forever do all this, to express his love, to show his love and his grace to you. All right, 
What about the result of your transformation? He goes on here a little bit. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's a gift of God. Not a result of work so that no, man, no one may boast. For you, I'm going to put this in the second person, you are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance for you to do. Last week, I, you know, I held up this beautiful piece of art that had been created out of a branch in a brush pile, in a burn pile, destined to be burned up. And a woman with an artist's eye and an artist's skill took that and made it into something incredibly beautiful, this beautiful candle holder. And, uh, and I bought that because I valued the beauty that she had made in that. that that's the idea behind that word handiwork or workmanship, depending on your translations. It, it means something that an artist or craftsman has created. This is not a mass-manufactured item, okay? You are not one penny in a, in a pile, a billion other pennies that look just like you, but with a different date stamp. No, you are the handiwork of God. You're going to look different from each other. We are all going to be different in our purpose and what we look like in that way. Because God is making us beautiful individual creations. That's what's involved in this word. So that is the result of his transformation. And because of that, and we looked at this especially last week, we are also his partners. We're not just stuck up on a shelf to look at. We're not just going to be those who are in heaven. We're just in this endless worship service. Uh, you know, I'm a pastor. I don't want heaven to be an endless worship service. Give me an hour or two, maybe, you know. That's not what it's going to be. We were created to work. We were created to matter. We were created to create, to be a sub-creator under God. And that's what we'll do in a way perfect, in a way more full than we could ever do now. How does that work? Well, remember in verse 10, right before this passage, it says that the church, the people of the church, are the fullness of Jesus who fills all things in every way. So maybe one way to think about that, by way of analogy, is to imagine that this is your life right here. Nice big book. It's not a Bible. It's, I don't want you to think weird of that because I did actually cut this book a little bit because I want to illustrate that maybe this is the Holy Spirit of Christ. And what God is doing in making us united with him, it says, I'm filling you with all that Jesus is. And it says in Colossians that Jesus Christ is the fullness of the Godhead. And then we're told here in Ephesians, I count at least four times where it talks about us being filled with Christ. And the idea then being that in this new creation of God, the same Spirit of Christ fills each one of us in our unique differences so that we are the image of the living God working with him, partnering with him, and perfecting and, and making this new creation all that it can be. In a sense, we are fulfilling God's original purpose for Adam and Eve and all mankind to be his images made in his likeness within this universe. And uh, it could go on on that, but I want to go on with our sermon a little bit. 
So that is the result of this transformation. One last thing about this, and then we'll go on to the application. Uh, we probably just need to mention the timing of this, the timing of the transformation. Because we have to remember that we're not looking at time the same way God is, right? God is e eternal. I take that to mean in the sense of timeless. In his essential nature, there is not before and after. There's not duration like we have. But in his work within creation, there is time. And he is able to do that. And in this work before creation, he sees time very differently than we do. It's almost like if this is the pages, if this is our book and we're going from one page to 2,000 here, God is able to see, as it were, each page laid out sequentially in one vision. He sees your tomorrow. He sees the next season of your life. He sees you as you will be 10,000 years from now. That's his vision, but it's not ours. We're here on page 72. We remember most of what happened to page 71, not so much on page 39, you know, and we know nothing about what happens on page 80 or 100 or 200, but he does. And so part of the problem that we have is we're seeing life day to day, page by page, and God has this transformative purpose that is greater than our understanding, and he's working on a time frame that we don't usually see. So what does that mean? That means that we're going to have to live with God by trust, by faith, because we're not going to see it. We can't right now fully. So that moves us into the second part. All right. What is our response to what God is doing? Before we go there, just a couple other verses that kind of flesh out this transformation. The same Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3, and we all who with unveiled faces uh, contemplate or reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with an ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. I love this verse. If anyone is in, in Christ, he is a new creation. He's not just a moral, a more moral person. She's not just a better person. They are a new kind of creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. And then this verse, what a great promise. And I am sure of this, Paul writes, that he who began a good work in you, and maybe now we have better understanding what that work looks like, the one who began it, he will bring it to completion. But it will be in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is the promise of God. So what do we do? Well, as I said, this is all going to boil down, basically, to the issue of trust, or another way to say that is faith. You are saved by grace. So let's start there. First thing we have to do, if we understand this at all, is we have to make sure that we are those who have come to place our trust or our faith, that's just different ways of translating the same Greek word, in Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. Normally in this world, we trust what we can control, what we're able to do. But we're told this is not by works. There are no good works you could do if you were your best self. There's no religious activity that can make you able to say, I won heaven. I earned this transformation. It's not by works. No one's going to be able to boast this. No. 
we start by recognizing this truth, that it has to be by grace because it can't be by works. Grace cannot be earned by its very nature. But you know what it can be? It can be accepted or rejected. 1833, there was a very unusual case that was brought before the Supreme Court. A man named George Wilson had been found guilty of robbing a post office or a postal service of some kind and killing a man in the process. He was sentenced to death. Uh, he had some influential friends who pardoned President Andrew Jackson or influenced President Andrew Jackson to earn him or to give him a pardon. And Jackson did. He was pardoned from his crime. George Wilson refused to receive the pardon. So that's what brought this case to the Supreme Court. This hadn't happened before, at least in our country. And Chief Justice Marshall, writing for the court, he said that a pardon has to be delivered in order to be in effect at all. And part of that delivery is it has to be received. And it says, if that pardon is not received, if it is rejected, then our court has no way to make it uh, enforced without that. And that's the idea. You can't earn this grace. You can reject it, though. You can reject it outrightly or just by putting off the decision, say, well, I'm just going to go my own way. I don't want to humble myself and admit I'm not good enough. Now, the gospel is that Jesus Christ will forgive all of our sins, transform us in a way that we don't understand, more wonderful than we can comprehend. But it starts by us saying, God, forgive me for my sins. Come into my life. Fill me with yourself. Transform me the way that you want. And if you haven't done that, talk to me today or talk to Pastor Nate or somebody here that you know that can be a, a midwife in that birth process, that new birth. All right. Not only, though, do we trust Christ for our salvation, but also let's trust him, and this is the second part, in our own situation right now, choose to trust Christ that you are totally and deeply loved and totally safe. You are deeply loved and totally safe because that's what you are. He who began this good work in you, it's a good work, and he will fulfill it. But see, here, here's the problem, as, as talked about before. The work is, is so good that it takes such a, a, a time frame and such a, a way of interacting with our life that a lot of the things that we want to happen in our life will not happen. A lot of the things that we fear in life happening will happen. And we have to figure out if we're going to turn our cold shoulder to God go through the motions, or even walk away. Or if we're going to say, like, like Job did, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. That's a hard choice. And it's going to come again at every stage, especially where there's an area of frustration or suffering. Paul put it like this, I reckon that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed. Yeah. That's the choice we've got to say as well. We've got to make as well to say that with him. Yeah, what I'm going through right now hurts. I wish it didn't have to happen. But I'm going to trust that God knows what he's doing. 
If God's transforming this ramshackle old building of my life into something beautiful and glorious, well, I guess there probably needs to be some demo days, right? Because that's the only way you can make this kind of transformation. Choose to trust that you are deeply loved and totally safe. You know, part of this is just knowing not only the transformative power of God, but his who he is and his plan for us. We don't have to know everything that's going to happen in our life or even in our future. We can just know through the logic of God's love and the promises he has made, we're going to be okay. Give me an analogy here. You ever read a book and you're totally immersed in it and it looks like the main character is going to end up dead? Or maybe... You know, you're watching a movie. Maybe it's a James Bond movie. And, you know, you're in this theater. You're letting your mind just slip away. You're giving into what's happening on the screen. And in uh, 30 minutes into it, it looks like James Bond is going to die, you know? It looks like there is no way this guy is getting out of this situation. He's toast. But then, you, you know, you kind of look at your watch. And, huh. Well, you know what? We've still got 90 minutes of this movie. Um, I guess it doesn't make sense that he's going to die there. Uh, besides, the, the picture studio is not going to kill their cash cow James Bond series, right? So it's going to be okay. I'm just going to sit back and see how he does it. Wouldn't it be cool if we could always do that with our own life? Boy, this area of my life looks like it will destroy my happiness. It will keep the purpose that I think my life should have from being fulfilled. It looks like there is no way this can be for my good. But oh yeah, I have a God who has promised me good. That he has said he would make a good transformation for me. So maybe I'll just sit back and see what, how he's going to do it. That's the kind of trust I'm talking about here. That does not come easy. Sometimes it's very hard fought. All right, last part. Choose to trust that God is shaping you for a unique and wonderful purpose. And the emphasis here is on unique. See, one of the things I think we're, we may get confused in our mind is, okay, we all have the same purpose of reflecting God, being his image in this, in this new creation. And right now, even in this world, doesn't that mean we're just going to do the same thing? No, it doesn't. Because just like a football team wants the same goal, we mentioned this last week, they have the same goal of winning the game, but they do that each person in different ways according to their position and their skills, and the way God has shaped each one. Um, even their body types are going to be different because of the different roles that they have within the team. So God is not going to waste the things in your life that he has worked hard to bring about. He's not going to waste your personality. He's not going to waste your particular way that you're wired. He's not going to waste the things that you value the most and that reflect him the deepest. And he's not going to waste your weaknesses and failures as well. Because we have his word in Romans 8, 28. God works all things together for our good. And if you read scripture, you see God often uses a person's weaknesses and faults and struggles and sufferings more than he uses that person's strengths and gifts and successes. We don't have to worry that our weak points, our failures, have disqualified us from being used by God now. 
He's able to do this. In fact, he, in this way, he will redeem your suffering. Last point under this then. This unique and wonderful purpose can be practiced now. Choose to practice it in your present life, in your present purpose. I'm not, I'm not sure I'm saying this right, but here, here's what I'm trying to get at. This is your ultimate purpose, this ultimate transformation that we're talking about, right? God's transforming you to reach that purpose. And it's going to be different than our goals here. But what does that mean about my purpose at this stage of my life? And, you know, maybe I've just been asking that myself the last few years after all that, you know, we've gone through and, you know, no, no, the kids are home and I have, you know, different areas of potentiality or things I could put myself into. God, what, what is my purpose for this last third of my life or whatever? Is it the same? Is it modified? Is it completely different? But what I, what, I want us to encourage, what I want to encourage us to do here, and again, I'm not saying this very well, is to ask God, all right, in light of your ultimate purpose and your transformation, what does that mean for me? Out of what have I gone through in this last year that you want to use in some way? What opportunities are before me that you want me to lean into and step into? And this, here's where I talk about what I mentioned before. And uh, I believe this is not based on scripture, just kind of based on other people's thoughts along with kind of my own mingled here together. Maybe a good way to think about this is there's four puzzle pieces that God fits together and mixes together in our life. And one of those I would call your blue flame. And I'm stealing that from a book by a woman named Jen Fulweiler, hard name. A great book called Your Blue Flame. And she talks about finding out your particular passion in life. The thing that makes you feel alive, but it's also that's good for the world. That's what I mean by blue flame. Second, your experiences, good and bad. Uh, and what insight they give you into certain areas of life. You're going to have certain wisdom because of certain experiences that you alone have gone through. Your, your spiritual gifts. How has God give, gifted you or given you skills that you have developed? And then lastly, the opportunity that you have before you or the need that's there before you. I have a feeling that our purpose individually for this stage of our life is going to be found as we prayerfully ask questions of self-examination in these four areas. And again, I'm not going to go through that right now. If you would like, some of you might want to uh, take this opportunity instead of going to life group, come down to the last room and we'll kind of go through this. I'll give you this uh, packet for self-reflection in this. As we close, you know, I think it'd be good to remind ourselves God didn't have to do any of this. He did it because he saw something of great value that he loved in you. I uh, looked online for other Coca-Cola bottling plants. I found a few. Don't they look great? Jacksonville, Florida. Neptune, New Jersey. Someplace in North Carolina that I've never heard of. Tallahassee. Helena, Arkansas. Coca-Cola bottling company. And the person who took this actually got inside. This is what would happen normally to a building that 
has been cut off from his purpose. God didn't have to transform us. So why are we being transformed into this instead of left to be that? Because God loves you that deeply. And that love, sometimes the knowledge of that is the only thing and the best thing that we can hold on to.